0: Welcome to the Horses Equine Innovators Podcast, sponsored by Zoetis. I'm your host, Stephanie Church, Editor-in-Chief at The Horse. Every day, researchers at universities and other institutions around the world are examining new ways to care for and understand our horses in the horse industry. In this podcast series, we talk to those innovators to learn more about their work. As horse owners, we have our rhythms and routines around the barn. There's a certain way we fill the water buckets, a particular method we use to distribute the hay. But why do we do farm chores the way we do them? And could we, and our horses, benefit from changing our approaches? Our guest for this episode is Dr. Steve Higgins of the University of Kentucky. Dr. Higgins is the Director of Animal and Environmental Compliance for the University of Kentucky's Agricultural Experiment Station here in Lexington. Welcome Dr. Higgins. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. So could you describe your background please? Tell me about your current role and how you ended up there.
1: I am the Director of Animal and Environmental Compliance for the College of Agriculture. I kind of um, created this niche position um, by trying to solve problems on our farm. I got on some committees and and the faculty were, you know, kind of arguing with each other about certain things. And so I had a, uh, an analytical mind and I was able to communicate with animal scientists and bridge the gap between them and engineers. And so I was able to um, um, solve problems for the college. And then that kind of spilled over into, you know, other people found out that I was doing it. And then they wanted me to come out to their farms and stuff like that. And so I do a little bit of that. But mostly my job is to just... Um, Look at things differently and solve problems for the College of Agriculture on our experiment station
0: farms. That's great. It sounds like you're the perfect liaison that they needed. Thank so, you. <laughs> you're welcome. So, how does what you do and study impact people who work on farms, specifically horse farms?
1: Well, what I try to do is it's just again, it's it's a matter of perspective, and I just look at things differently than than a lot of people, and and then I also have subscribed to this philosophy that. 95% of what we see every day is invisible to us because we're on the same farm. We see it every day, and so what I try to do is, is just provide a fresh pair of eyes and and literally look down on the operation from, you know, aerial photography, which is a great perspective, and just try to um, point out some things where efficiencies could be made and improvements could be made for for the caretaker, but also some of these improvements can also benefit and create more of an optimum environment for the horses as well. And and so those are the objectives that we're trying to, to do.
0: I've seen an aerial photo of the farm where I keep my horse out towards Georgetown. And I think she has that aerial photo to plan kind of um, soil testing and things like that. But I wonder if they've looked at it for efficiencies. That's, that's pretty interesting. So each farm is kind of like a, a challenge for you then.
1: Every farm, and I mean every farm, is different from the standpoint of the shape of the farm, where things are located. Everything from fences to gates to roads to barns, facilities, where the waters are, um, and, and, and if you really want to look at those efficiencies from from an aerial standpoint, you actually just actually just kind of draw lines as far as where am I going? I'm going from here to there, and then you measure those distances. And then you look at it as far as like, okay, how can I cut that distance out? How can I eliminate steps?
0: That's great. Thank you. What would you say our biggest obstacles are to changing the way we manage horse farms?
1: Um, the biggest obstacle for changing things is, um, is the lack of ability to change. Well, as, mm-hmm. as human beings, we just do not like change. We don't like to you know, accept change and in order for you to change something in order for you to to uh, bust that resistance to that change what you have to do is is you have to be dissatisfied with what you see and mm-hmm. so i got this equation so you have to be you have to be dissatisfied and then you have to have a vision of what things can be and then you have to make the first steps to to implement that vision so it's it's dissatisfaction times vision times first steps and if those if you if that product is not, is not greater than resistance then you're not going to change anything and if any any one of those things is zero then you're not going to change anything cuz that that's, that hmm. function is zero so that's why that's my m- biggest challenge is, is people don't want to change and i think you need to change you need to embrace it and you need to think about how you can change some things and make things better
0: so let's talk about a few of those things that might be causing dissatisfaction around the barn Uh, We're going to unpack this topic a little differently than we have the others in our series because you are such a problem solver um, out there practically and on the farm. So I'm going to list a problem or even just a common annoyance that we might have around horse farms. and I'd be interested to hear how you might look at the problem differently. So right now it's hay season around here. Last night I went for a ride and there was actually somebody cutting hay in the field beside me. Um, if you manage a farm, you are moving hay a lot. So what is your vantage point on hay logistics around the horse farm? How are we doing it wrong and how could we be doing it better?
1: So when I look at a horse farm, I, I would normally I would ask people what your job is and uh, what do you think your job is? And people always look at me with this like crazy look of what do you mean? And I'm like, no, really, what what is your job? And they, they would basically say something like maybe like raising horses, which is you know mm-hmm. very generic and what I would want you to do is just drill down even further. I mean, what is your actual job? So, in my opinion, your actual job is, is moving things. That's all you do all day long, you know. You, you hop in the truck, you go to the store, you get products, you bring it back, you unload it, you stack it, you store it. Eventually, from there, you move it again, you know, you put bedding in a stall, you take the bedding out of the stall, you're moving water, you need to move air in the building, you need got to move the horses, equipment, yourself, so on and so forth. So, if that catches people off guard, then that's a cue, okay, because what do we know about material management? The other thing that should be a cue is is if you don't know what your job is, it's kind of hard to do it, you know, From if you step back. So the whole thing with, like, the hay situation is, is one is you want to reduce the number of distance, the distance that you're actually traveling from the point of production to you get that hay in front of that horse's mouth. And so you want to reduce those distances. You want to reduce how many times you pick it up and move it. I've been on farms where they moved hay several miles on the farm and maybe picked it up and moved it six times before it wow. actually got in front of the animal. So so you want to reduce that. You also the first thing of, of moving anything is don't move it if you don't have to. And so, you know, animals are out and. Uh, during the growing season i mean they're out in pastures and they're eating and they're you know they're grazing and they're feeding themselves it's when we start feeding them that we create this drudgery for ourselves but we also create drudgery for the horse as well if we actually create mud when we go through you know like winter feeding seasons and stuff like that so the other thing too is is when you are moving hay you need to move it in bulk and sometimes we do this i mean it depends on the what we call the package you know is it a, is it a large round bale is it small squares you know that type mm-hmm. of thing but eventually what we're moving is is we're moving a small flake and so again you, you know if you're going to move something move it in bulk and mm-hmm. um so that helps out and then uh, uh, but the distance is is probably the biggest thing and also Another thing you want to do is is reduce the wasting of that hay depending on how you feed it because the more you waste or the more uh, the animal wastes, then that's more material you have to move. And then when they waste the hay, then that's more for you to clean up. So if you can cut back on any and all of these things from steps to number of times you pick it up and move it to uh, the percentage of waste depending on how you feed it, then you can gain some significant efficiencies that way.
0: What are some solutions that you have for wastage and like preventing wastage of hay?
1: So the wastage of hay to me, and I, and this is this is across the board. Depending, I mean, it's not necessarily uh, just for horses. I mean, this is this is cattle, this is chickens, this is anything and everything. If you give an animal an opportunity, it will waste as much material fodder as it eats. You know, so that's a significant amount, mm-hmm. and a lot of that, in my opinion, is due to the design of the feeder um, typically animals are going to eat, say, as an example, 2% of their body weight, okay, in mm-hmm. forage. And so it's, so that's, that's a given that anything above that 2% is basically attributed to the type of feeder that you're using. And so what I try to do, particularly in like the cattle industry and, you know, and other, you know, chickens and so on and so forth, what you'll see is, is you'll see hay barriers is what we would call them, where basically what you want to do is, is you want the animal to stretch, and and if it stretches, it has to go through more effort to eat, and then it's not inclined to waste as much. Case in point: if you put uh, a hay flake basically in in a uh, in a net bag, well, then it's got to you know get its mm-hmm. muzzle you know in there to basically be able to get pieces and parts here and there conversely if you give it all of it then then it you know and it has free choice at it then it might waste a whole lot of it might pull a lot out it's going to step on it if it steps on it it's not going to look at it twice you know and and those are the types of things that kind of lead to waste so that the method that you feed you know the hay barrier is is a significant way of reducing waste
0: okay and we had actually had a conversation before this and you had mentioned uh, design of hay, hay feeders for horse owners, and how sometimes people will place those feeders like way out in the middle of a field, where whereas you th- feel like maybe they should we'd be better placed somewhere else. What are some of your so thoughts again, on that? So again, yeah,
1: it's it's logistics, and so. Um Okay, so you so you basically you're at you're at the barn or wherever the hay is stored, and you put this hay in the back of whatever it is. I mean, it could be it could be a round bale on the front of a tractor. You could be throwing a square bale in the back of the truck or an ATV or whatever, and then you're going to drive to this uh, wherever that horse is located in that pasture. And so then you're going to get to a gate. And then you gotta dismount that vehicle, you've got to open up the gate, you gotta get back on the vehicle, you gotta drive through, you gotta get back off, you gotta close the gate so you don't have any escapes. And then you're like, okay, where am I gonna put this this you know this feed for them to eat it? And yeah, a lot of people put things like out in the center, so they you know want animals to have a spatial distance between themselves so that they eat their own food and and maybe they you know they don't get to eat someone else's or run over real quick and get theirs after they eat theirs and stuff so you want to put this separation in there. But mm-hmm. the way I look at it is is particularly in the wintertime, we are tearing up our fields or horses can tear up a field and create a lot of mud and suck their shoes off and that type of thing. but if you actually look at it uh, in my opinion depending on what vehicle you're using, we're doing more damage than the horses are as far as creating this mud, which is their area, and this drudgery. So uh, I've, I've done some what I call fence line feeding systems for 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 cattle and stuff like that, which has really taken off because you don't have to go into the field. You don't have to open these gates and dismount vehicles and so on and so forth. You can set up a system where the animals are safe, where they've got you know clear access to the hay, uh, you design a feed barrier that reduces the waste. You can put a roof over it if you want to conserve the hay. If we're running into bad weather and there's you know, a significant amount that's going to be there for a while, you can preserve it that way. But these are, these are all systems of, of, of basically, again, just reducing steps, reducing driving. And so on and so forth. I I I have to tell you, I have a lot of people that actually enjoy the, the driving part of driving a tractor on their farm. They use it to unwind mm-hmm. and relax and so on and so forth. And I can kind of see that, but if you're traveling long distances and you look at five dollar a gallon fuel and wear and tear on the vehicle, um it would be cheaper for you just to hire a therapist and reduce your traveling distances. Right. That makes sense.
0: It does. What about these little hay structures that are out in the middle of the field, the ones that are prefab? Do you have any experience with those and their wastage and what you found with those?
1: Yes. I mean, so anytime I get a question on how much waste does something create or, or you know what types of feed barriers to use, I would go to the, basically the research and, and pull up papers that have been written on this. And so there's been several. And so they basically look at... Uh, The percentage of waste, if I give an animal essentially free access to, you know, some hay in which they will waste, you know, 50 percent of it versus some of these other structures, whether it's uh, hay huts or or cradle bales, you know, carriers or, you know, mangers or those types of things. Yes, each one of them has a different percentage of of waste. And then you just do a cost benefit analysis to to. you know, determine if that's something you want to spend your money on to to reduce that waste. Again, reducing that travel distance basically gives you a a double bonus because not only are you reducing waste, but you're also reducing travel.
0: So what about other issues with simply getting around the farm? What types of inefficiencies do you see besides gate placement and um, hay distribution?
1: Um, I think a big one is is the whole mucking of the stalls uh, situation um, for me and, and, and some of that that leads to it. So on the, st- if if it's okay on the stalls, but one of the things I see is it's like you, what you want to do is, is, is you putting bedding into the stall and then the next day you're basically taking it out. You're doing all this by coming in through a very, very small opening and, you know, which is cumbersome in, in other livestock sectors like beef cattle, dairy cattle, uh, chickens, whatnot. when again, when you move in things in bulk, we're using front-end loaders. When you're mucking stalls, you're using a pitchfork. And so I look at that whole logistics of bringing in uh, hay and muck and, and bedding into a stall. as just chaos. The other thing that's in there is is the water that's in the stall. So we don't have a lot of separation between the corner where we feed and where we have the bucket of water. And so that can lead to problems as well. And on the bucket, if if you were to close your eyes and design the best housing system, you know, stall design for a horse, you would not put the water over over bedding because as animals drink, then basically they're going to spill it out and that's going to foul the bedding, which is more bedding that has to be removed. Mm-hmm. If you actually think about it, you would never put water over bedding. You need actually make the animal walk several feet before it got back on the bedding so that that wasn't wasted. And I I can just, you know, picture certain mares in my mind right now. I can see them, you know, sticking their muzzle in to get a drink of water. And then they pull the muzzle out and they're basically they just all they have to do is just shift their lower lip and they're dropping like a quart of water on the floor, <laughs> just fouling bedding. And that that's that much more material that has to come out. So I think one of the big things that frustrates me about horse farms is the the design of the stall flooring. I think stall flooring is probably one of the most neglected technical aspects of livestock housing in general, and I think it could be improved significantly.
0: So how exactly? Yeah, what's the, the approach that you would take to uh, the floor in a barn with your background in uh, other types of farming?
1: Well, I think there's – there's, I mean, there's several, in my opinion, and there, there's several things wrong with, with, you know, stall design. I mean, whatever you want to call it, box stall, standing stall, whatever. There's just not a lot of room in there to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, the ventilation, uh, depending on the design, can be extremely poor, uh, particularly from the midline of the horse down. There's, like, no air movement down below there. And so that whole thing with, you know, urinating and defecating, the, the gases that are given off – And how much that's going to bother the horse is uh, significant from the air quality standpoint. Conversely, if you had – and and what normal people do in stalls is is, um, the flooring is typically it's a dirt floor. I mean, it's just the old tobacco barn. It's a dirt floor. Let's keep it. Um, You might have some stalls back in the day that maybe had asphalt in them or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the typical practice is, is to come back in with a three-quarter inch you know, thick sheet of, uh, of rubber matting, put that down, and then basically put the matting or the bedding on top of that. Well, what's going to happen is is when that, when that horse urinates, um, there, let's say there's a gallon or two that's going to come out, that's going to go through the bedding basically as a stream, but then once it hits that rubber, it's going to spread out and it's going to foul all kinds of bedding which, again, is more that has to be removed, and then that means there's more that has to be brought back in. And then what to do with what you removed is another problematic uh, scenario. So reducing the amount of bedding you use because you don't take it out is significant. Now, conversely, if that animal was to urinate on a pervious floor, where liquids Mm -hmm. could actually go through, and you also have some air movement that could come through that as well, then you're not fouling as much bedding because the urine will go through the bedding as a stream and will go through the floor as a stream. All you have to do is, is just manage how that liquid is moved away from the barn. But typically, barn flooring is either at the same or at a lower elevation than the surrounding elevation outside of the barn. So how do you drain it? Well, it wasn't designed for horses to begin with. So I think, you know, being intentional about the design of the stall from the standpoint of providing more space for the animal, um, providing pervious flooring, providing ventilation, providing some natural light, some some natural ventilation to come in, um, and then, again, moving the location of feed and water so that you don't waste a lot of it. Um, on the size part, I mean, I think it's um, – Again, it's one of those things that's just dismissed. So you have an animal that's out in a paddock and and in central Kentucky, that horse is going to have at least a couple of acres per animal. You go out in some other areas out in um, the rest of part of the state and a horse might have five to seven acres. And Uh that's 43,500 square feet of space, you know, per acre. But then what do we do? We bring that animal into a stall that's 10 by 12 with no ventilation, no light, no ability to see its mates, and then we dismiss the fact that it's kicking the sidewalls of the stall or it's pawing holes into the floor because it's uh-huh. frustrated. It might pull all of its hay out. It might play in its water, and all of these things creates more work for the caretaker, in my opinion, because now the stall floor is deformed. You got these holes. You know, you got to fix it you know, because we don't want these animals to, you know, I call it Darwinism. You know, we don't want them to be exposed to, you know, sharp, you know, pointed objects or, or mm-hmm. rough surfaces or protruding, you know, uh, objects. But we put them in these stalls and then we we want them to share that space with, um, with a groundhog that's undermining the stall flooring. And we don't think anything about it, you know, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I think those are all things that could be improved on significantly. Well, uh, just one other thing. I got one other thing. So there was this issue of the stalls, I think some people might be uh, resistant to putting in, you know, rock and stalls and stuff like that. But there are mm-hmm. methodologies where you can put in uh, crumb rubber with some small scale uh, rocks, some small size rock that's about the size of a pea and use a coating on it, essentially like polyurethane where you can bind that material so it doesn't move. You have the infiltration, but then you also provide this, uh, this comfort for the horses as well. So huh. for what that's worth.
0: Interesting. I'd like to see that in use somewhere. It sounds you like you actually it's very- can.
1: If you walk down some of the city streets of, for instance, like Louisville, you will see the same type of material um, placed around the base of uh, trees along the street, where basically okay. it allows water to infiltrate uh, around the tree, but then you don't have the the mud and the mulch and all those other things to deal with. So that's that's one of the places you can see this type of uh, application.
0: So going back to this, you mentioned the tobacco barns. We have a ton of those around here in central Kentucky that have been converted into stables. Um, I've been in several different types, some that have haylofts and that are maybe a little stuffy inside. And then I've yep. been in others that are really quite open and they have stalls that have open tops and no bars between them. And it's more like a multi-use space where they have a tractor parked on one side and the other. So I know they run the gamut. What other things do you see with the renovation and reuse of tobacco farms that maybe isn't the most efficient or best thing to do for the health of the horse?
1: We could, uh, we could go on for an hour, you know, but, but <laughs> right. what, what I get, what I, all right, so this, I mean, just from the get go. Okay, so the tobacco barn was was raised or, you know, designed for the curing of tobacco or the processing of a vegetative plant. When you put an animal in there, I mean, the whole design needs to change. And so, Uh what are those? What are some of those kind of things going to be? Well, orientation of the structure is going to affect air movement. Uh, Any kind of what we call shadowing, as far as how close is another building, how close are trees, as far as how they're going to affect the air movement going through that barn, the amount of light that comes in that barn. I mean, sunlight, as an example, is is free, and and there's not a Uh, more effective uh, uh, or a cheaper disinfectant known to man, but we, put animals in barns that are basically all sealed up and there's no air movement coming in, there's no light coming in. Well, why is that? I mean, because light can, can do a lot as far as like drying up that spilled water in those floors and, and disinfecting, you know, uh, bacteria and pathogens and drying out manure so it doesn't smell as bad. And the same thing could be said for the air movement. I mean, that can also do some some drying effects as well. And so we, we just we've limited ourselves to that again, on the the tobacco barn, because it's used for for curing uh, tobacco and the way we wanted to hang it on the tiers, typically you've got a interior, you know, column design, you know, like basically a post barn where Mm -hmm. those columns are 12 or 13 feet apart. And so uh, lo and behold, that ends up becoming the standard design for horse stall based on where the existing columns were. Well, what -hmm. would you do if it was a free-spanning barn? You know, kind of like An open church design, as an example, you know, where it's like uh, arches and you have this, you know, free space. I mean, how would you how would you lay out things there? I think the the multipurpose barn, like you were just describing, where you've got the openness, where you can have uh, other use of equipment in there. um, That's a big thing, too, is is the equipment that we use and the equipment and barns or structures should complement one another. When you have a structure where you can't pull in a tractor, well, that's just you've compromised the design right away. So mm-hmm. this this whole thing of being able to come in, being open, uh, is, is a good thing. Now, what do you do about dominant and submissive horses? Well, within maybe the, some of those columns, if you had an open design, you can put up uh, panels, essentially. They can be just boards going across, like you know, four-board rail fence, where you basically create an escape for a submissive horse to get away from a more of an alpha horse. And again, if they have more space, then you can eliminate a lot of um, of the frustrations, the behavioral frustrations that lead to some of this bad behavior.
0: Mhm. Yeah, my friends have this lovely tobacco barn that they converted about 20 years ago, maybe even longer, into a horse farm, and that's the one that has the Tractor parked on one side and the RV parked on the other, and it also has like three stalls in there. Um, the horses aren't kept in there overnight or anything. It's more or less a place where they could come in, eat separately, uh, be tacked, things like that. And then also, they have like an open area in the back that's like a run in shed that works really nicely in the summer. Um, so, what I'm saying is the tractor isn't parked in the same place where the horses are sleeping, which Correct. worries some people about like safety.
1: No, 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 that wouldn't happen. No, no, yeah, good, good point to bring up, yes.
0: So at the farm where I keep my horse, uh, he goes out for 16 hours a day at least, which I love, and he's so happy there, only spending a few hours each day inside. So most of his time out in the field, he has these two ginormous, Uh, run-in sheds that he can share with his buddies. Is there a way to efficiently manage a field that has a large run-in shed so that it's, you know, good for the environment, um, good for efficiencies, good for avoiding hay wastage, things like that?
1: So um, location in the structure is going to play a part into uh, how far you have to drive to go out and get to it. Again, you want to think about orientation of that structure from the standpoint of bringing in um, uh, prevailing winds, but also you want to bring in sunshine in the wintertime. Conversely, in the summertime, you want to exclude sunshine. So for me, the best orientation of a run-in shed is a um, southern opening um, mm-hmm. with maybe a smaller, um, maybe a, uh, an opening up along the top, along the, the vent or the or the soffit or the eave of the barn, so you can get some airflow coming in and also moving out. Typically, I would want those structures closed on the east and the west because the morning sunshine is going to make uh, an animal hot. Like on this morning, I mean, it was 90% humidity this morning. So uh. even though you might have what appears to be a cooler temperature, when you add in that humidity, you've got a really, really high what we call uh, heat index or, or temperature humidity index. Mm-hmm. So and conversely, uh, you want to close it off on the west side because you have a lower humidity in the afternoon. But the but the sun is hotter, or the air temperature is hotter. So closing off of the east and west is good for protecting animals when the sun is at a lower horizon and is basically perpendicular to them, which can really heat them up a lot. And then if you got an overhang over the the southern opening, then basically the sun doesn't come in in the summertime because it's at its peak. It's like at a 70 degree angle, so that protects the animals inside the barn. Conversely, in the winter time, the sun is going to be at a lower elevation, probably about 30 degrees on the horizon which allows that sunlight mm-hmm. to come in the barn, dry out the flooring, so on and so forth. And then, yeah, there's the things of, uh, of leveraging those buildings for um, feeding and watering. I like to um, actually um, fence in or uh, at a run-in sh- shed structure to basically make it its own compound where you could uh, harden the surface with basically geotextile fabric and rock to make what we call an all-weather surface which lends uh-huh. itself great for winter feeding, uh, for watering, for, for winter feeding, for actually capturing the animals. For uh, And then those uh, the, that same structure could be used um, during the summer because I foresee that not only are we going to have these, these uh, drought-type situations and the heat that we have like right now where you need that shed to get these animals in, to get them some, some shade, and also the air movement that goes through there. But conversely, we're going to have deluges. We will have four inches coming down in several hours Uh with climate change and so on and so forth where that hub or that facility, that fenced in um, run in shed could be used as a way of holding those horses off the pasture to let those pastures drain so that the animals aren't um, doing a slip and slide or doing a lot of um, pugging. And, uh, right. and plowing of the field with their hooves, and which is going to destroy the grass. So yeah, they can be confined into like a run-in shed area for for overnight, for a couple hours, whatever. Let that soil perk, let it drain, and then open the open the gates and and turn them out. If you organize one of these fenced off, you know, run-in shed areas where it has access to multiple pastures, then uh-huh. you just leverage that uh, hub. To again, to multiple pastures, which is to me a, a great benefit. Whether it's more than one is is ideal, you know, a three or four is great. So,
0: so what you're saying basically is it's your dream to basically have someone say, here is a blank canvas, design it for me. <laughs> How um, can we make this yeah, so efficient, or is
1: that- I try, I, I yes, some of those are sometimes that that blank slate can be scary for me because it's like you know but but yes there are some concepts as far as design of, of where these structures need to be located um to to get the best leverage off of it like on the run in shed if there's an access road that runs near this then then that is golden ideally mm-hmm. what you want to do is is you want to develop your farm um with a central location and and let's just say that the farm is is a square as an example or, yes. or and and so if that operation is in the center then it is an equal distance to any one of the four corners. If you have a uh, rectangle-shaped farm, then a center operation is good, but if you can – and putting that operation on the center along the edge of one of those long sides is Mm -hmm. also very efficient. But what is not efficient is to basically put that operation in the corner of a rectangular piece of property where the farthest distance is the farthest corner. Again, Mm -hmm. if your job is to move stuff – and and that's that's the animals that's you that's whatever having those far distances uh, is just creating drudgery and, and inefficiencies. I mean, from 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 now on, and and those things just compound themselves over time. Um, and that's the same thing essentially with equipment. You'll have people that buy, you know, cheap equipment because it's it's it is it's cheap. But the thing about it is is what you will find in any industry that if you spend a little bit more money to get uh, decent equipment, then it's going to lower your operating, your annual operating costs from then on. So okay. that also plays in the part of, of design and location of the facilities as well.
0: So I'm going to back up a little bit here and go back to winter, which seems like it's very far away since it's 95 degrees outside right now. Right. But mud, that is one thing that I hear our readers talk about all the time. Um, I feel like many of us just accept that it is a terrible certainty in life. So what are some other culprits besides some of the ones you listed, the gully washers, the you know, the um, standing standing around, stomping feet, sliding after rainfall? Are, are there any other? What about waterers in the field? Is that, is that another place where you end up with problems?
1: Uh, yes. I mean, there's several things there. From the standpoint of, of water, I mean, um, as a general rule, soil and water is going to make mud. Okay just just there all right it and and that's kind of true but the other thing is it's it's the treading of the animals it's the kneading and the and the constant you know pressure on a wet soil that creates deeper and more mud so the more often you move an animal um from one field to another during the rainy muddy season is going to be better off for you now it's that seems counterintuitive because a lot of people are like no I don't want to tear up all my pastures well uh, and that's where some of these run-in sheds and some of these things come into play. Um, from my standpoint, it's soil, okay? Our normal, you know, Maury silt, loam topsoil, whatnot, is basically not um, – does not have the mechanical strength to support the weight of a horse. Uh, most people don't buy into that, but basically mud is your proof of that, okay? So uh-huh. uh, once that soil gets wet, then it, it's going to create mud. So putting in what I call all-weather surfaces – which is basically a combination of uh, geotextile fabric and rock where you remove the topsoil. you got to remove the topsoil. you got to get rid of six to eight inches of it. And, okay. and you want to put that on what I would call a summit position. On top of a hill, you're going to remove six or eight inches worth of topsoil to get down to a mineral soil or a compactable you know, clay layer. If you go down into a bottom, you might have four feet of actual topsoil. Well it's not cost effective or practical to build heavy traffic pads in areas where that it receives all that runoff. Um, right. So putting on things on summit positions, that's where you would want to do your feeding, that's where you would want to do your watering. But conversely, what do I see? I see people, you know, taking hay flakes and, and putting in hay feeding structures and put them in, in drainage waste, which basically it's a conduit for any water that's going to hit on the upland area to drain down and drain through. And so the more water you have draining through there, the more water or more mud you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing can be done or looked at as far as drainages on barns. I mean, there's just not a... a A large overhang that comes off of tobacco barns, it's usually only more than a foot. But guttering barns and actually diverting that water and piping it and having it go someplace else so it doesn't become a problem uh, somewhere else is a good thing. Not having uh, grass grow up around the barn, having at least a foot of rock on the outside of it so that that... Uh Any water that does come off the gutters or does come off the drip edge doesn't splash back up on the siding of the barn and uh, end yeah. up causing brown rot and that type of thing um the location of waters you want have you want to have in my opinion you want to have a situation where of a water where basically animals have room to to drink where they have at least um two feet of linear space to get around and drink you don't want to put the water in the like the corner of a field where uh, a dominant animal could, could trap a submissive animal in that corner, you want to have uh, escape routes and put those in places where, again, in heavy traffic pads so they don't create a lot of mud, where they got access to the water, where they don't have to walk a long distance. Um, th- those types of things are, are good things to think about from the standpoint of not creating mud especially in the gateway so those are another other places anywhere where you're going to have animal traffic and if you do the fence line feeding with buckets or whatnot those are other places filter fabric comes in 12 and, and 20 or 12 and 15 foot widths um an animal is at least eight so having a, a 10 foot heavy traffic pad off of a fence or or 10 feet around uh waters is a good way of not creating mud around those facilities
0: and we have some good materials i think from uk on our website about heavy traffic pa- pads and how to put those in and where to site them and things like that and i'll make sure to include links to those materials in the show notes so um something that i remember you talking about in our previous conversation was when you solved a problem at a particular farm uh, with some animal traffic now granted it wasn't horse traffic it was cattle traffic but i found that kind of interesting and how you approached that problem and solved it. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, So basically what you will see on on a lot of cattle farms um, is basically what you call a cow path. Um, And and there's two different ones. So you have a cow path that will go a long distance and typically you will see that and basically the animals are using that path to get to a water that's some distance away. Cattle don't like to walk more than 600 feet to get to water. If they do, what they'll do is, is they'll make a path uh, the other thing that you'll see, especially on side slopes of uh, steep hills in the 20 and 30 percent range, is you'll see what I call cow touring, uh-huh. which is basically uh, cow paths that are about two feet apart uh, that run the contour going down the hill. You might have, you know, dozens of them. And so uh, I was asked to, you know, how can we how can we solve this problem? And so what I did was, was or what you notice is, is a cow will make a path or an animal will make a path. And then as weather occurs, rain, events, whatever, that path might get muddy in places and unpassable. And so they'll just move over and they'll make another one. And so what I did was, was I went to a tire recycler, a uh, uh, recycler that actually recycles semi-truck tires. Now, semi-truck tires are every bit of, of 44 inches tall. And mm-hmm. so what this company would do is is they would actually had a machine that would cut the sidewalls out of those of those semi tires. And then an example of the uses that they you would see for those is, is when you're driving down the highway and they're doing construction and you see those orange barrels. Well, they'll take one of those mm-hmm. sidewalls and they'll put it on that barrel and it fits all the way around it and on the bottom and it keeps it from blowing away when semis run by it. Well, what I you wanted see. was is what we call the tread cylinder which is this rubber band, you know, ring or ribbon of, of the tread. And so what I did was we got a, a backhoe, trackhoe, you know, front end loader, but, or not a front end loader, but a backhoe, trackhoe bucket, which was probably about 36 inches wide. And we cut a notch um, eight inches down into this this where this path was. And and so I put down, I, I cut geotextile fabric to that width of 36 inches, put that down on the bottom, and this laid this semi-tire, uh, on that fabric, and then came back with um, with rock and actually filled it in up to the top mm-hmm. of the ring. So what you've got is is on erosion, particularly gully erosion. Gully erosion, when it when it gets going or head cuts, when it gets going, it'll it'll cut all the way down as far as it wants to cut, and Mother Nature wants to cut it, and it will continue to climb up the hill until Mother Nature decides it wants to stop, which is it just doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so. That, that gully erosion is basically dictated by, by two things. One is, is, is the area vegetated or not, and what is the slope length and the slope degree? Well, the slope length, when you put in these semi-truck tires, the slope length becomes 44 inches, okay, so you can't get this head cutting starting because if there is some start that occurs within the rock, within the tire, it's got to go over that rubber ring and start it again. So it, it's already it's already terminated. So you don't get erosion coming from these areas. And animals are not dumb. I mean, they're, they're very efficient at what they do. So they don't like to walk through tall grass that's going to rub on their legs and slow them down. Or they don't want to walk in mud that's going to add to their weight and be slippery and slidey and, and you know, create drudgery. Because they have to pull that, you know, that suction of that, you know, the hoof back out. So when you create these paths, then they stay right on it. And 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 36 inches wide is perfect for them. So when it comes to imp- inclement weather and and whatnot, this is this is where they'll be. So I did a couple of runs of a couple of hundred feet, you know, especially trying to climb up steep slopes so that these animals could get up on top of the hill to eat and drink. And uh, it, it solved the problem, and it's very cheap, and you're basically recycling tires, and it's just and it's just rock. Now the rock that I use, uh, this is a good point for any any application is pretty much going to be what I call dense grade aggregate or DGA. It is a combination of various size rock diameters, uh, what we call 57s, plus rock chips and dust. What you want, and that's the material that I want, and the more dust it has the better it is going to be able to lock that angular aggregate together. What I see on a lot of horse farms is is this um, use of what I call class I sand, which is basically it's rock chips. Uh You get that material on any slope more than 1%, it is going to erode, it is going to move off, and it's going to get deposited at the bottom of that slope. And so I typically don't recommend using that. Uh, I go with the DGA, I get it wet, I compact it. And uh, I add w- more water to it, even more than what I think it needs. And, and when you get it compacted like that, when it dries and cures, it's almost going to be as hard as concrete. But that's a good material to use. Now, when I talk to a lot of horse farm owners, they don't like rock because, it, you know, the small stuff gets impacted, you know, in the frog and you got to chip it out. And they're concerned that larger stones like 57th and things like that is going to bruise, you know, bruises, the, yeah. the hoof and so like that. But there is no way, in my opinion, or not an easy, cheaper way to get away from mud than using dense grade aggregate and geotextile fabric. If you don't use the fabric, that rock will end up in China. And and you also have to cut a notch and, again, remove that topsoil because it has no strength. And by cutting into the soil, now you're using the sidewalls of, of that soil to actually hold that rock into place. If mm-hmm. I go outside on top of the grass and just throw the fabric down on top of the grass and throw the rock up on top there, it's going to get scattered to the four winds. You you just wasted an effort because it will not stay together. And so that's, to me, that's the proper way of installing these pads to get some longevity out of them. Now, most heavy, heavy track pads, probably depending on their use, um, might not last as long as you want mm-hmm. them to. But again, adding in some of these... Um, other materials like the, the semi-tires or, or, or some of the plastic grid materials or so on and so forth are ways of extending the lifespan of, of those heavy traffic pad areas.
0: So I have a quick question about the tires. Now, since the sidewalls were taken out of them, this is kind of an ignorant question, but are, is there still any of the metal in the tires at that point or is it just rubber at that point?
1: It's just the rubber.
0: Okay, that's cool. Or have you made this application with the tires and a horse property yet?
1: No, I have not. No.
0: It'd be kind of I haven't. interesting. See how it would go.
1: The thing about it is, I mean the, the best way of describing what what's going on um, is just basically looking at, at highway pavement. So you're you're mm-hmm. running down I75, 64, whatever it is, and you will notice that your your truck tires are basically sitting in two troughs, okay? Mm-hmm. So what's happened is, is that pavement is basically it's deformed and, and from the weight of your vehicle and semis and whatnot. And so it is basically there's been this lateral pressure that pushed that pavement and the rock underlayment underneath of it out to the left and the right. And in some cases, it'll actually creep up, you know, on the sides, and you've got these ridges. That's the same thing with, with the paths that horses do, okay? Now, what you're doing is, is by putting in that tire cylinder, is any lateral pressure that's that's pushing on the left and right on that rock has no place to go because mm-hmm. it's contained within that rubber ring. So, and and if you do any kind of you know cleaning, you know scraping with a front end loader or rain events or whatever that would normally wash uh, away some of this stuff, you can't wash it away because you're not going past that inch and a half thick rubber ring.
0: That's really interesting. Thank you for explaining that.
1: There's actually. On that concept of doing this rock and fabric and tires, it's actually there's someone has a patent on it. Okay. If you can believe that, it's actually called mechanical concrete. Oh, interesting. But that's huh. the point. The point is, is that soil doesn't have the bearing capacity, so you have to mechanically uh, strengthen a surface for animals to stand on, for feeding and watering. That's basically going to be able to hold up under all types of weather conditions, and that's what you're doing.
0: Well, where can listeners learn more about your work, Dr. Higgins?
1: They can go to the UK College of Ag webpage, uh, look up publications, look up my name. Um, they can do a search for any particular topic that they might be interested in, which may pop up uh, other researchers and their publications. Um, like I said, a lot of my stuff recently has been on the, on the cattle side of things through the Eden Shell Farm, and that's been uh, interesting as well.
0: Well, thank you. You've given us a lot to think about and consider for our farms. So thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us today, Dr. Higgins.
1: Not a problem. Thank you for the interview.
0: I also want to thank our sponsor, Zoetis. For more from the horse, visit thehorse.com, sign up for our newsletters, or look for Ask the Horse Live wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like this podcast, please do all the things you would do to support it. Rate, subscribe, review, and share it with your friends. Please join us next time as we talk with the Horse Industry Ecoin Innovators.